today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Eileen Bowerman. This is Wednesday, December 21, 2022. Here's our first story from the front page. Caring for Cops by Eric Pratt. The cookies were the gift, but the gesture is what local law enforcement will always remember about the recent Christmas time visit with the Dodger Girls softball program. Head coach Andy Adams and her players baked hundreds of holiday treats for the Fort Dodge Police Department's officers, detectives, and secretaries this week in a sign of appreciation for those who serve and protect the community through thick and thin. A recent conversation between Adams and Fort Dodge Police Chief Roger Porter gave Adams the idea. The Hall of Fame coach wanted to do something in recognition of the staff's steadfast work and commitment, but also to lift the spirits of the people who are there for us every single day in so many ways we rarely take the time to realize. I was talking to Roger about some of the things that have happened here recently and the physical and mental toll it's taken on everyone involved, Adams said. We are so incredibly lucky to have them protecting us in ways we tend to overlook or take for granted. It's a tough job, and it's often thankless. We wanted to come up with a way to give them a break from the grind and hopefully put a smile on their faces for at least one morning. The plan worked. Over a dozen officers visited Fort Dodge Senior High School on Monday morning, and they were greeted by student-athletes who had packed nearly 500 cookies into 50 care package boxes ready for distribution. When you deal with the ugly side of the job the way we have in recent weeks, especially to have a group of people, especially young people, slow slow things down for us and bring some positive energy to the equation— It really helps in so many ways, Porter said. We greatly appreciated both the treats and the sentiment behind it. Going to uh, the Fort Dodge High School and interacting with the kids was something we enjoyed as a break of sorts. It was very thoughtful of them. Adams remembers turning the tables on Porter during their discussion and asking, Who looks out for all of you? A lot of these men and women have kids at home and young families, Adams said. When Roger is telling me about the missing newborn case and officers and detectives are physically wearing themselves out and getting sick in the process of the search, it's the side of the job most of us can't imagine. They see a lot of darkness and negativity. I wanted our kids to think about that during the baking and packaging, not just who we're doing it for, but why we're doing it to humanize the officers and detectives, and to build a stronger relationship and level of respect with who they are and what they do. Adams called it an emotional moment. A few of them even teared up a little bit, Adams said. It's an opportunity to teach. The kids got a taste of the real world and just how stressful situations can be through our ongoing discussions. 
We even had some former students who are now on the force back in the building. The positive energy really seemed to help in its own small way. Porter's daughter, Lucy, is a sophomore all-conference Dodger player. I get to see Coach Adams and her motivational tactics from the perspective of both a parent and a coach at the lower levels with the Pride program, Porter said. It isn't always about softball with Andy. There's a bigger picture, and a lot of life's lessons these girls take away from playing for her. I appreciate it, both personally and professionally, because I know Lucy and her teammates are learning both in the present and for the future when they are adults. Someday they'll look back, and it won't just be about baking cookies. They'll remember being active, building relationships in the community. So it goes way beyond becoming better softball players. They're better people because of it. And there are some pictures here. The Fort Dodge police chief, Roger Porter, is standing uh, in a huge open room, but he has a huge smile on his face and a stack of seven boxes uh, all stacked up. The bottom one has some gingerbread men across it, and the others stacked are saying Merry Christmas. Um, He's holding the whole stack. And then there are a couple of other pictures with an open box with uh, different kinds of cookies in them. So we'll move on to another front page article. It's Fort Dodge to lose Sears hometown store. The recently declared bankruptcy of Sears will cause the demise of the Sears hometown store in Fort Dodge. Rick Jones, the store's owner, said Tuesday it will close early next year as a result of the bankruptcy. Sears Corporate decided to file bankruptcy and left all their dealers in the lurch, he said. He said he expected the store at 1828 First Avenue South to close February 28th, but added that it could close earlier depending on how an ongoing liquidation sale proceeds. In addition to Jones, the store has three part-time employees. I'm sure I'll land on my feet somehow, Jones said. The Sears hometown store offered appliances and tools, but did not sell clothing, shoes, and some other items found in larger Sears stores. Jones said he still has 12 washers and dryers, 8 refrigerators, 6 stoves, some lawnmowers and snowblowers, and hand tools. He said all are marked down 10% to 30%. The Sears hometown store in Fort Dodge opened in May 2015, just four months after the large Sears store that was an anchor of the old Crossroads Mall closed. The store was originally in the mall in a space once occupied by Walgreens and later Hancock Fabrics. Jones, who had worked for Sears since 2004, bought the store in 2019. The store opened its current location in January. It occupies part of a building that once housed Fort Dodge Machine and Supply. Taking center stage with Britta McCollum. Being, B-E-E-I-N-G, being all you can. McCollum shares love for beekeeping 
and the stage. If anyone knows Britta McCollum, they know she is passionate about beekeeping and bees. But there is so much more to the Fort Judge Senior High School Senior. McCollum loves to perform. She loves the stage and loves being involved in as many things as time will allow. The Dodger Senior has been beekeeping for more than four years when she received the Honey Producers Youth Scholarship. I've had a petition to set up an ordinance had a beehive stolen and reigned as Boone River Bee Queen, currently the Iowa Honey Princess, McCollum said. I have actively advocated for honeybees and the environment, and one of my favorite things is talking to people about honeybees. As a Dodger, McCollum is involved with the marching band, jazz band. She plays baritone saxophone, choir, speech, the fall play, the spring musical, student ambassadors, quiz bowl, DECA, FFA, and Boone River Bee Club. She is also a member of the Iowa Honey Producers, and in years prior, she was in robotics and GSA. McCollum is passionate about everything she does, and that is something that drives her to stay active. If you love something and are passionate, you will make time and you will strive to get better, McCollum says. Getting involved creates better communities and it has built up my confidence over the past years. I used to be a really shy kid, but now I can find anything to talk about. On stage, she has done four plays. She has been in A Midsummer Night's Dream, While the Lights Were Out, and Radium Girls. She was also in Johnny Brook, a ghost story at the Hawkeye Community Theater, where she did lights and sound. In Fort Dodge's most recent musical, Footloose, McCollum was stage manager and plans on helping in this year's musical as well. My favorite part of all of these is the moments in between the acts where someone cracks a joke or after when we go out past 12 talking and tell our parents it's because of the play, McCollum said. But my favorite memory is working with my stage crew and going on adventures in middle school. McCollum got the performing bug in fifth grade when she started singing in the choir. I have done choir since fifth grade, but my first push into performing was when my eighth grade band director, Peer, pressured me into picking up the berry sack, she said. Ever since then, I've asked myself, why not? And ever since then, I have found my love for performing in every way possible. While on stage, McCollum is able to find a calm place. Performing is, to me, is very stress-relieving, and it can be very personable, she said. I also love the feeling you get when you step on a stage, and you can't tell whether it is your adrenaline that is making you nervous or if it's making you excited. But performing for others who can feel and relate to you is the most rewarding part of all. One of McCollum's favorite memories on stage is when she constructed a personal piece about her family. Sophomore year, I did a personal piece about my family that I wrote for an individual poetry contest, and I made my dad cry with it, McCollum said. I also was paired to be coached with a pastor, and I was really nervous until she yelled a profanity word that really blew my mind. 
Through all her endeavors, McCollum has had a strong supporting cast and friends and instructors who have helped her achieve her goals. My biggest influences start with my parents, McCollum said. Donna Porter, Rebecca Dix, Mr. Al Paulson, Mama Lindley Krug, and Mr. Matt Dree. My friends, Taylor Johnson, Riley Reed, Dominic Berry, and Jude Beekman. After high school, McCollum plans to attend Iowa Central Community College for one year. Then she will attend Iowa State University in Ames to pursue forensic psychology and maybe entomology. And there's a picture of her. It looks like she's on a stage. She um, she has on a blue a blue dress with kind of a turquoise collar. She has reddish brown hair pulled back off of her face into a ponytail in the back, and she has glasses on. And some more information about her: her vacation destination is Boulder, Colorado. And uh, she said, it would surprise people that I didn't know you're not supposed to cheer at tennis meets. And I can't go a day without Mr. McBride telling me to get back on task. And a dream piece is a Greta Van Fleet marching show. From the opinion page, Messenger Editorial. Worthy New Program Cultivates Future Leaders. Growth Alliance Works with High School Juniors. Dangling from the ceiling of the local firehouse in a complex rope harness is one unique way to learn about the services your community provides to its residents. At least one young man did that recently as part of the new Junior Leadership Program conducted by the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance. It is a series of classes intended to teach juniors in high school about all the interesting and important aspects of the town they live in. In addition to giving them knowledge, the program also strives to inspire them to be proud of their community and, eventually, take a leadership role in it. The program is based on a leadership program the Growth Alliance has conducted since 2005 for adults. That initiative has proven highly successful at cultivating future leaders. Jill Nelson, the Alliance's Community Development Director, decided to create a version for teenagers. We thought, why not take the same concept and make a greater impact in the community utilizing that same structure, and that's where the idea for the high school program came about. Nelson told The Messenger, Participants in the program will learn about economic development, recreation, arts and culture, health care and public safety, local government, and civic engagement. The most recent session was on health care and public safety. It included a visit to the Fort Dodge Fire Department. Rope rescues are relatively rare around Fort Dodge, but the firefighters still need the equipment and know-how to perform them. So that's how Thomas Cosgrove ended up dangling from the ceiling. He is one of 19 local high school students taking part in the Junior Leadership Program. The group includes 14 from Fort Dodge Senior High School and 5 from St. Edmund High School. 
The students are not paying anything for this experience thanks to donations from local businesses. The program will conclude in the spring. This new junior leadership program seems like an ideal way to get teenagers more connected to their community. We thank Jill Nelson for organizing it, and we thank the local businesses that are supporting it financially. And perhaps more importantly, we congratulate the 19 school students who decided to get involved. We're better that this group will be doing lots of good things for the community in the future. And another editorial by Robert Reich. When will the GOP reach the anti-Trump tipping point? As Congress ends its first post-Trump term, the biggest political question hanging over America is this. When will the GOP finally reach its anti-Trump tipping point when a majority of Republican lawmakers disavow him? Again and again, it looks like the tipping point is near, but the GOP remains under Trump's thumb. What about last month's dinner at Mar-a-Lago with Ye, formerly Kanye West, the man whose fame as a rapper has been dwarfed by his anti-Semitic and racial declarations, along with infamous Holocaust denier Nick Fuentes? It didn't come near tipping the scales. What about Trump's December 3rd declaration that the massive fraud of the 2020 election would allow for the Constitution to be terminated? Nope. Both events caused grumbling among a few Republican lawmakers, but most avoided criticizing Trump as they've avoided it in the past, as they avoided doing so the moment the fur over January 6th had died down for fear of his wrath. But what's to fear now? Didn't the midterms reveal how weak he is? After all, most of his endorsees flamed out, including celebrity doctor Mohammed Oz in Pennsylvania, Tim Michaels in Wisconsin, Blake Masters in Arizona, Adam Laxalt and Carrie Lake also in Arizona, and Herschel Walker in Georgia. Walker's campaign even asked Trump to stay away in the final weeks. Many election deniers hit the skids. Michigan's legislature swung to the Democrats for the first time since the 1980s. Democrats defied almost all doomsday prophecies as well as the historic pattern of presidents losing midterms. And why? In large part because so many voters fear and loathe the former president, nearly as many viewed the midterms as a referendum on Trump as who saw it as a referendum on Joe Biden. As Mitch McConnell explained, Voters were frightened by the Trump-induced GOP rhetoric, and so they pulled back. And it's only going to get worse for Trump, right? His business has been found guilty of criminal fraud. Investigators have found more classified documents in a storage unit near Mar-a-Lago. A criminal case is pending in Georgia. The January 6th committee is likely to make a criminal referral to the Justice Department, whose special counsel is already building a criminal case against him. Several leaders of the January 6th attack have already been convicted of seditious conspiracy. Even the kingpins of the GOP, including the right-wing media tycoon Rupert Murdoch, have switched their allegiance away from him 
to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis or Ted Cruz or another GOP hopeful. So why hasn't the Republican Party as a whole tipped? Why aren't almost all Republican lawmakers publicly disavowing the former sociopath-in-chief? In two words, the base. Utah's Republican Senator Mitt Romney, no friend of Trump, put it bluntly recently. I think we've got, I don't know, 12 people or more that would like to be president that are thinking of running in 2024. If President Trump continues in his campaign, I'm not sure any one of them can make it through and beat him. He's got such a strong base of, I don't know, 30 or 40 percent of the Republican votes or maybe more. It's going to be hard to knock him off as our nominee. That's the problem in a nutshell, folks. It's not so much the size of Trump's base. Even 40% of Republican voters is a relatively small group nationwide, especially considering that fewer than 30% of all voters are registered Republicans. It's also the intensity and tenacity of their support which gives them effective control over the Republican Party. They worship him. They won't budge. But until they budge, most Republican lawmakers won't budge either. Romney and Liz Cheney being notable exceptions, and we know what happened to her. The problem isn't some highfalutin moral issue, such as Republican lawmakers putting their party over their country. It's something more. They want to keep their jobs, which means the GOP continues not as a political party, as a governing institution, and as a moral entity. That may be good for Democrats in 2024, but in the larger sense, it's bad for all of us. I do solemnly swear. There are several pictures here. I think, let's see, five pictures of Webster County officials as they take an oath of office. The judge is County Judge Angela Doyle. And this is on Tuesday morning. Supervisor-elect Austin Hayek takes the oath of office from Webster County Judge Angela Doyle. Hayek was elected to serve as the District 2 Supervisor on the Webster County Board of Supervisors, replacing retiring Supervisor Kenneth Decklau. He is standing in front of Judge Angela Doyle, and she has her right hand uh, up, and he has his right hand up. In the background is a uh, picture of, it says Webster County, and it's a picture of the county and a beautiful scene of uh, some rivers and woods. And the next picture is Webster County Treasurer Brenda Angstrom, she takes the oath of office. She has on a red jacket and has her hand in the air. Um, Another one is the oath of office is given to Nikki Conrad. She was reelected to serve as the District 4 Supervisor on the Webster County Board of Supervisors. Another one is Lindsay 
Lofferswiller. She takes the oath of office for her third term on Tuesday morning as Webster County Recorder. And the last one is Darren Driscoll, Webster County attorney. He's shaking hands with Judge Angela Doyle after being sworn into office for his second term as county attorney on Tuesday morning. And moving on to Washington, D.C., millions to lose Medicaid coverage under Congress's plan. Millions of people who enrolled in Medicaid during the COVID-19 pandemic could start to lose their coverage on April 1 if Congress passes the $1.7 trillion spending package leaders unveiled on Tuesday. The legislation will sunset a requirement of the COVID-19 public health emergency that prohibited states from booting people off Medicaid. The Biden administration has been under mounting pressure to declare the public health emergency over, with 25 Republican governors asking the president to end it in a letter on Monday, which cited growing concerns about bloated Medicaid enrollment. This is a positive for states in terms of planning. However, this will come at the cost of some individuals losing their health care, said Massey Worley, a principal at health consulting firm Avalair. Millions are expected to be bumped from the program which grants health care coverage to nearly 60 million low-income people throughout the country. The federal government will also wind down extra funds given to states for the added enrollees over the next year under the proposal. Many will be eligible for health insurance coverage through employers, the Federal Care Act, or, in the case of kids, the Children's Health Insurance Program. Also from Washington, Zelensky prepares to visit D.C. today. Ukrainian President Zelensky is preparing to visit Washington on Wednesday, according to three AP sources, in his first known trip outside the country since Russia's invasion began in February. Two congressional sources and one person familiar with the matter confirmed plans for the visit. They spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the highly sensitive nature of the trip. They said Zelensky's visit, while expected, could still be called off at the last minute due to security concerns. The visit to Washington is set to include an address to Congress on Capitol Hill and a meeting with President Joe Biden. It comes as lawmakers are set to vote on a year-end spending package that includes about $45 billion in emergency assistance to Ukraine. On this date in history, this is the Associated Press. Well, today is Wednesday, December 21st, the 355th day of 2022. There are 10 days left in the year, and winter begins at 4.48 p.m., Eastern Standard Time. Here are some of today's highlights in history. On December 21, 1864, during the Civil War, Union forces led by Major General William T. Sherman concluded their march to the sea as they captured Savannah, Georgia. Also on this date, in 1620, pilgrims aboard the Mayflower went ashore for the first time at present-day Plymouth, Massachusetts. 
1891, the first basketball game devised by James Naismith is believed to have been played by the International YMCA Training School in Springfield, Massachusetts. The final score of this experimental game was 1 to 0. In 1913, the first newspaper crossword puzzle, billed as Word Cross Puzzle, was published in the New York world. In 1914, the U.S. government began requiring passport applicants to provide photographs of themselves. And in 1995, the city of Bethlehem passed from Israeli to Palestinian control. You are listening to the Fort Dodge Messenger on Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. This is on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind, and all material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print handicapped. I'm your reader, Eileen Bowerman. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll continue with today's obituaries. Ivan Sheeler, or Jake, Ivan Jake Howard Sheeler, aged 89, of Newton, formerly of Monroe, passed away on Saturday, December 17, 2022, at Mercy One, Newton, in Newton. Visitation will take place on Monday, December 26, 2022, from 4 to 6 p.m. at Coburn Funeral Home in Monroe. Funeral services will be held on Tuesday, December 27, 2022, at 10 a.m. at the Monroe Presbyterian Church in Monroe. Burial will be take place at Silent City Cemetery in Monroe. Memorials may be directed to the Monroe Ambulance Unit or the Monroe Presbyterian Church. Condolences may be left for the family at www.coburnfuneralhomes.com. The son of Howard and Lillian Van Bay Sheeler, Ivan was born on July 27, 1933, in Monroe. On August 9, 1952, he was united in marriage to Mary Lou Kent in Newton. They made their home in Monroe, Iowa, where they raised their three daughters. Ivan began working at an early age. He learned the skills of a farmhand, electrician, plumber, mechanic, truck driver, and carpenter, just to name a few. Those traits soon labeled him as a Jake of all trades. He could fix almost anything. Ivan worked many years as a carpenter for McCracken and Van Zomeren. He helped build many homes and structures in the county. Ivan retired from Jasper County Secondary Roads after 21 years of service. Ivan was proud of the home he and Mary Lou built. It was completely renovated, which included turning a two-story house into a ranch-style home. That home was filled with his strong faith and family that he loved dearly. He was a loyal servant of God and a dedicated husband, father, grandpa, and great-grandpa. 
Ivan and Mary Lou spent many hours traveling to see their family and enjoyed the activities of the grandchildren and later great-grandchildren on these trips. Ivan's toolbox was always packed to fix something. Ivan loved to visit and never knew a stranger. He loved sitting on his front porch with a cup of coffee along with a cookie or two, a mint in his pocket, or some dentine gum. Those left to honor his memory are his daughters Connie Smith, Debbie, Ron Calvert, and Cheryl Gregg Raid, eight grandchildren, Landy, Nathan, Megan, Lacey, Calvert, Laura, Katie, Gail, Scott, Reed, Alex, 14 great-grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews. Preceding Ivan in death were his wife, Mary Lou, an infant son, William Howard, his parents and sisters, and numerous sisters-in-law and brothers-in-law, and nephew, Kent. From Gowrie, Janet A. Decker, 87, passed away Saturday, December 10, 2022, at her home. A celebration of life will be 4 to 8 p.m. Tuesday, December 22, 2022, at the Heartland Bank Community Room in Gowrie. Graveside services will be at a later date in Lost Grove Township Cemetery near Harcourt. Palmer Funeral Home, Gowrie, is serving the family. Memorials may be left to the discretion of the family. Palmer's Wank Funeral Home.com. Bernita Holthouse of West Bend. The family service is 11 a.m. on Monday at Lentz Funeral Home in Humboldt. Visitation is 10 a.m. until service time at the funeral home. www.lentzfuneralhome.com And the final one is Lenora de Chavez of Webster City. The service for Lenora de Chavez 92 is 2 p.m. Friday, December 23, 2022, at Bowman Funeral Home, com in Webster City. Here are a couple of sports articles. Fort Dodge Bowling Team Sweep Waterloo East at Home by Chris Johnson. The undefeated Fort Dodge Boys Bowling Team keeps on winning. The Dodgers, 7-0 overall, knocked off Waterloo East, 3,024 to 2,852. The Dodger girls, 6-1, earned a win as well, defeating the Trojans, 2,238 to 1,839. Nathan Beekman was near perfect for the boys in his second game of singles action. The senior started with six strikes and missed in the seventh frame as well as the tenth. He had ten out of twelve strikes. Beck, excuse me, Beek had a really good second game, said the head coach, Nick Vincent. He started well and finished strong. Beekman fired a 448 series. Riley Travis had a 411 series with a 220 and a 191. 
J.R. Stubbs was just shy of a 400 series, rolling a 399 with a 219. Trenton Beck, 360, Carlson Werning, 351, and Zach Reck, 340, rounded out the, bar, the boys' varsity lineup. After singles, we were up 48, and we averaged 211 in Bakers, Vincent said. That is the highest we have had yet. We had a 248 game in Bakers, and that's really impressive. We did what we needed to do, and when it came to Bakers, they rely on each other. I'm sorry, I have lost my place. They rely on each other, and that's a good step in the right direction. For the girls, Arissa Lumsden had her best night of the year. She rolled a 202 and a 194, excuse me, 195, closing in on a 400 series for a total of 397. Also competing for the Dodgers were Gabby Flores, 292, Amy Lumsden, 281, Haley Lumsden, 251, and Sol Berkey, 227. I told Arissa it was her time for a 400, and she came close, Vincent said. She just missed the 7 in the 10th, or it was right there. The boys' junior varsity team won 2,486 to 1,887. Dylan Crawford, 415, and Landon Meyer, 315, led the Dodgers. The Fort Dodge girls' junior varsity recorded a 1,170, and Gabby Santanabas had a 164 series. And there's a black and white picture of Carson Wearning as he's bowling for Fort Dodge on Tuesday against Waterloo. He's got the uh, a black bowling ball in his right hand, and he's in a bent-over position looking straight ahead at the pins, and it looks like he's about ready to release the ball. And from Carroll, Iowa, two wins each for Alt and Wooldridge. The Fort Dodge boys' swim team came away with a split in a triangular against Carroll and Spencer on Tuesday night. The Dodgers edged Spencer 70-68. to They lost to Carroll 92-46. to both sophomore Dylan Alt and freshman Dane Wooldridge were double winners for Fort Dodge. Alt, a student at Algona High School, won the 200 freestyle in a time of uh, 150.62 and the 100 backstroke, 56.47. Wooldridge, who attends Manson Northwest Webster, was the 200 individual medley champion uh, 2.15.38, as well as the 100 breaststroke winner, 1.05.94. The Dodgers were second in the 200 medley relay. The quartet of Brady Major, Wooldridge, Evan Cooper, and Alt touched the wall in 1, point, uh, 1 minute 51 seconds, point 75. Fort Dodge closed the meet with a runner-up showing in the 400 freestyle relay. Wooldridge, Carter Jorgensen, Cooper, and Alt finished in 3 minutes, 54 seconds, point 10. The Dodgers returned to action January 5th at Mason City.
And here's some statistics for the hot corner for Wednesday, December 21st. In 1891, Dr. James Naismith, Naismith introduces the first game of basketball based on 13 rules created by him. The game is tested by 18 students at the School for Christian Workers in Springfield, Massachusetts. Using a soccer ball, two peach baskets, and two teams of nine players each, the objective is to throw a round ball into a round basket attached to a balcony 10 feet above the floor. So that was the start of basketball in 1891. In 1941, the Chicago Bears won the NFL championship with a 37-9 rout of the New York Giants. In 1997... Barry Sanders of the Detroit Lions becomes the third player to rush for 2,000 yards in a season when he gains 184 in a 13-10 win over the New York Jets. Sanders finishes with 2,053 yards, second to Eric Dickerson's 2,105 in 1984. In 2010, the number one ranked Connecticut women's basketball team tops the 88-game winning streak by John Wooden's UCLA men's team from 1971 to 1974. They did this by beating number 22 Florida State 93-62. Maya Moore has a double-double with a career-high 41 points and 10 rebounds and Bria Hartley adds 21 points for the Huskies, who hold the record for the longest winning streak in all of college basketball history. From Rio Dell, California, violent quake in California damages homes, disrupts power. A powerful earthquake rocked the northern California coast early Tuesday, jolting residents awake as it shattered glass, shook homes off foundations, damaged roads, and left nearly 60,000 homes and businesses in the rural area without power and many without water. At least 12 people were injured. It felt like my roof was coming down, Cassandra Stoner said. When I woke up, the only thing I could think about was, get the freaking kids. When the ground stopped moving, Stoner's family was fine. A daughter even slept through the racket. But when she showed up to work at Dollar General... She found tiles had fallen from the ceiling, shelves were toppled, and the contents of the discount store were scattered on the floor. The magnitude 6.4 earthquake occurred at 2.34 a.m. near Ferndale, a small community about 210 miles northwest of San Francisco and close to the Pacific coast. The epicenter was just offshore at a depth of about 10 miles. Numerous aftershocks followed. Residents in the area, known for its redwood forests, scenic mountains, and the three county emerald triangles, legendary marijuana crop, are accustomed to earthquakes. But many said this was more violent and unnerving than the usual rolling motion they experience. You could see the floor and walls shaking, said Arciela Huerta, who was still shaken up some ten hours later. It sounded like a freight train was going through my house. And from Des Moines, the second Iowa man arrested in street race that killed four-year-old. A second man was arrested Monday in the death of 
a four-year-old Iowa boy who was killed when a car racing on a city street crossed into oncoming traffic and crashed into two vehicles. Des Moines police said in a news release that 47-year-old Keith Eric Jones of Des Moines was arrested on charges that included homicide related to reckless driving and drag racing. Robert Miller III, 35, of Urbandale, was arrested last week on similar charges. Investigators found that Miller's sedan was going more than 100 miles per hour along a four-lane road in Des Moines as it raced a BMW SUV that Jones was driving. The crash happened December 13th. Miller's car crossed into oncoming lanes and struck a vehicle that was carrying the four-year-old boy, also injuring an adult and an eight-year-old inside, according to investigators. The car then struck another vehicle, injuring an adult driver. Miller also was hurt. Everyone who was injured is expected to recover. Sergeant Paul Parisic, a police spokesman, said investigators don't expect to make any additional arrests in the case. And from the business page. Stocks rise, bond yields jump after Japan surprises markets. Stocks closed modestly higher on Wall Street, while bond markets around the world felt pain Tuesday after a surprise move from Japan's central bank cranked up the pressure on an already slowing global economy. The S&P 500 rose 0.1% after flipping between small losses and gains in the early going. The Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 0.3%, and the Nasdaq Composite barely budged after closing less than 0.1% higher. Small company stocks outdid the broader market, lifting the Russell 2000 Index 0.5% higher. The muted gains were enough to end a four-day losing streak for the major indexes. The biggest action was in the bond market, where yields pushed higher after Japan, one of the world's largest and last bastions of super-low and economy-aiding interest rates, made moves that could allow rates to climb more than otherwise. The Bank of Japan said Tuesday it still wants the yield on 10-year Japanese government bonds to remain at roughly zero. But it also said it would allow the yield to move up to 0.5%. 0% instead of the 0.25% cap it had held previously. What made Tokyo's unexpected move a particular jolt was how much resistance it's shown so far in joining the global campaign to hike rakes in order to undercut high inflation. The Bank of Japan's surprise move allowed it to take a small step away from the extreme, dovish side of the monetary policy spectrum where it had stood alone all year among nations and uh, major national central banks, wrote Jennifer Lee of BMO Economics in a note to clients. It is not joining the rate hikers out there, but it is now a tad closer. Higher yields make borrowing more expensive, which slows the economy while also pushing down on prices for stocks and other investments. 
Other central banks around the world, particularly in the United States and Europe, have been raising rates at such an explosive clip that a growing number of economists and investors see a recession hitting in 2023. Both the Federal Reserve and European Central Bank have pledged to keep raising rates into next year to be sure the job is done on getting inflation under control. Aftershocks from the Bank of Japan's move on Tuesday rippled through bond and currency markets around the world. In the U.S., the yield on the 10-year Treasury rose to 3.68% from 3.59% late Monday. That yield helps set rates for mortgages and other economy-setting loans, which has already meant particularly a particular pain for the U.S. housing market. A report on Tuesday showed U.S. home builders broke ground on fewer homes for a third straight month in November. The number of building permits, meanwhile, fell to its lowest level since June 2020 when the pandemic froze the economy. The two-year U.S. Treasury yield, which tends to more closely track expectations for action from the Federal Reserve, was more reserved. It held steady at 4.26%. And a short column, you'll pay more, that is Y-U-L-E, pay more. The traditional Christmas dinner has become the latest victim of Britain's cost-of-living crisis. Research from Mintex Index that tracks prices for the festive meals ingredients has soared to its highest level in a decade. The index covers the typical holiday meals components, which include turkey, pork, potatoes, carrots, and parsnips, along with Yorkshire pudding, a baked side dish made of flour, milk, and eggs. There's also the almonds, raisins, sultanas, and sugar used in the Christmas pudding or dessert. The index has jumped by 22.5% from last year, reflecting rampant inflation caused by Russia's war in Ukraine, labor shortages stemming from Brexit, and supply chain disruptions related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Rising costs for livestock feed, fertilizer, and electricity have pushed up agricultural commodity prices, Mintex said. Turkey prices averaged about six pounds $7.45 a kilogram in November, up by nearly a third from last year as bird flu led farmers to cull flocks to prevent the infection from spreading. Some commodity prices, such as wheat, milk, and sugar, have started falling recently, but not in time to ease the burden on consumers for Christmas, Mintech said. And with an eye on consumers, the conference board delivers its latest index of U.S. consumer confidence today. Economists expect this month's reading edged higher to 100.5. That would follow a reading of 100.2 in November and mark the first monthly increase since September. The index, which measures consumers' assessment of current conditions and their outlook for the future has been mostly hovering above 100 amid red-hot inflation and sharper, higher interest rates. Before the pandemic, 
the index regularly topped 120. And calmer seas. There's a picture of a large um, ship, a carnival ship. It says, Carnival reports its fiscal fourth quarter results today. Wall Street expects the cruise line operator will show a smaller loss and higher revenue for the September-November quarter than in the same period last year. That would echo the company's results in its previous three quarters. Carnival has struggled since the pandemic temporarily shut down the cruising industry. This year, the company's bookings for future trips have been increasing sharply. And finally, the housing barometer. The National Association of Realtors releases its November tally of U.S. home sales today. Economists predict sales of previously occupied U.S. homes slowed to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 4.2 million properties last month. That would follow an annual pace of 4.43 million homes in October when sales fell for the ninth consecutive month. Home buyers are facing sharply higher mortgage rates, rising home prices, and fewer properties on the market. And we'll end today with one letter to Dear Annie. Husband wants his lover to move into our home. Dear Annie, I need therapy because of what is happening in my marriage. My husband of 28 years has had a five-year relationship with another woman, and now they've had a child together. My husband is a 56-year-old autistic man. He is so hurt because he did not want to hurt me. We have been crying together over this. He sobs uncontrollably because he wants to keep me protected, while at the same time saying that he does not want to leave his five-year-old child and his girlfriend. He wants me to stay in a trailer on the property so I can be safe, and he wants to move the girlfriend and child into our home of 15 years. I have nowhere to go. I am alone except for him. What do I do? I have broken down miserably, and he has too, but she wants to live in our home. Help me, please. Dear help me, I'm so sorry that you are going through this. Seek marriage counseling immediately. You don't have to allow your husband's mistress to live in your home. That sounds like torture. It is bad enough that you suffered through an affair and now he wants you to live with a daily reminder of it? The answer is to him, no. She cannot move in. He can move out if he tries to press the issue. You have rights. Please seek the help of a professional therapist and if he is unwilling to go to counseling, then I would call an attorney. Well, that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for December 21, 2022. I'm your reader, Eileen Bowerman. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Mm-hmm.